Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you this week from the Nikola Tesla College of Engineering here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we're talking about the chance find in Jerusalem of a Roman period bronze lamp depicting half of a grotesque face and the even chancier discovery of a matching half in a Hungarian museum. How can we explain this peculiar phenomenon as an indicator of the Roman era world system or just as a weird novelty item sold to tourists with bad taste. What can we say generally about humans and their strange devotion to artificial light and all that it brings, late nights and early mornings, and all that it keeps away, like cave bears? Okay, so here's, here was my idea for a lightning round question. Least favorite type of light fixture. Oh. Least favorite. Hmm. And there's only one correct answer. Oh. I think fluorescent. And <laughs> we have a winner. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, I guess I have to, I was going to say opulent hangy chandelier, but I think fluorescent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I probably should have specified type of light bulb, but, you know, that made it a little too, a little too obvious. Right. Yes. Well, I think that that's, you know, the fluorescent bulb is specifically responsible for sucking the, sucking the vitamins out of everybody's brain for, <laughs> for, for decades and lulling school children of, you know, baby boomer age into some kind of thrum. Preternatural sonambulance. <laughs> <laughs> that's another way to put it. <laughs> The sure. only thing fluorescent light bulbs are good for is in movies when there's there's some kind of ominous situation and they start flickering. Flickering, yeah. yeah and make that little noise, that staticky noise. Yeah. That's true. That's... Oh, can I change my answer though to strobe lighting? Because I've always hated <laughs> strobe lighting. <clears throat> well, that's a good that's a good point. Something that they never really used in in educational settings. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that they never used in the Bronze Age. Probably, experimentally. I'm sure there were some projects in which strobe lighting came into some kind of pedagogical environment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the grant to the, uh, to the CIA specified <laughs> that uh, they would only be using strobe lighting on their subjects. <laughs> but, well, but wouldn't, wouldn't uh, uh, the flickering of a, the gentle flickering of an oil lamp in some cave setting or dark dark building setting be kind of the psychic equivalent of, of a of a strobe yeah, light absolutely sure and and how about the how about that that period of time just as it 
as it goes out and you're deep in the cave oh. and you hear a noise and the, and the flickering goes out and right. you're start, you start looking around for your piece of flax. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it kind of makes that, that very distant fluttery noise. <laughs> It is very much like a like a fluorescent light with the buzzing in it. Right, it is the equivalent. I guess so. Except then you're you're seeing the silhouette of a bear in the background. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, you know. So again, it comes back to these movie like movie like settings. Right, yeah. and it comes and it comes back to light is good. Light and, is good. Right. Right. And darkness is bad. It's <laughs> ominous. It's. It's a source of much insecurity. Right. Yeah. But this raises the question for me of what, what people, not only what people use, but what human psychology was like before they figured it out with this whole lamp thing. And there are other lamp issues that I, I've got a lot of issues with lamps. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we, should, maybe we should let our reader know a little bit about our starting point. We have right. a reader? I mean, reader. <laughs> <laughs> our listener, our Belgian listener. Uh, Rachel, do you want to uh, give us the, the Flemish okay. and Walloon uh, simultaneous um, versions? Yeah, not being able to speak either. Yes. So, so a, a discovery was made of a bronze cast lamp from the Roman period, uh, first or second century of the common era, found in Jerusalem, um, probably at, at, in a foundation deposit of a building on the um, pilgrimage road that connects the Temple Mount to the Pool of uh, Siloam and, and beyond. And um, this is a particularly unusual lamp. It's shaped like a face, but it's shaped like half a face. And um, it, uh, it, and they also found a wick, which is very unusual. And then, just as soon as you think it can't get, as more if that is enough, yeah, right? Um, you, you, if if it, if you didn't think it's getting better, it gets better because um, once this news story broke, um, somebody from Budapest contacted the excavator in Israel, saying. Nine years ago, we found the exact same lamp, only the other half. Another bronze casted lamp, but this ours is the right side of the face, yours was the left side of the face. I might have gotten that backwards. Um, and it seems that the dimensions are, are almost identical. Uh, and uh, it's a very unusual style of lamp. And there we have these two halves. So and that's what we're it talking about. That they have little sockets that, that would be fitted together. That's right. That's right. Like the Hungary one had a had a depressed like socket, and the Israel one has a protruding thing that fits nicely in it. Right. Um, so, so, so yeah. Um, although when I was looking at these things, it looked like the the holes that made up the nose and the mouth were not a hundred percent the same size on the two lamps. But right. I'm going to let the experts worry about that. Right. Yeah. But it's kind of cool. I mean, there's so many cool aspects about this, not just the weirdness of the lamp, but the, the fact that, you know, that it, the, public, the publicizing of the one lamp led to the matching of the other lamp. Don't you guys think that's kind of cool? Oh, totally cool. I think that the serendipitous connection made between these two half lamps is just incredible. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and so far afield. 
I mean, right. you know, it's not like southeastern uh, Europe and or you know Turkey and Israel. It's it's deep in <laughs> in Central Europe. Right. Um, right. And and it just shows that you know those Romans, boy, they really got around. Talk about a world system, right? Yeah. I mean, a real, a real, <clears throat> you know, free trade zone. Yeah. And this is before the internet and before airplanes and just, just a little bit before those All things. All those things. <laughs> yes. But, but we have to, we have to credit the internet because it sounded like this Hungarian museum curator was, was just flipping through the news or looking at Facebook one day and he, and it just it just all clicked for him, and he was like, "Whoa, I've I've seen that. I've got one of those." Right. But it was right. the other half, and now he's going to get some kind of three D printed version of the Israeli one, and he's going to try and fit it together, and they'll be reunited, and right. it'll feel so feel so good or something. <laughs> but, uh, well, right. you know, but but where do these things come from? Are they two halves that were made some third in some third location and separated over the over the millennia? One went north, one went south, and now and now we bring them back together. Who made them? Why? Were, were they custom made with one going, you know, one going to to uh, <clears throat> Roman Palestine and one going to, you know, Roman Roman, <laughs> Roman Magyar or whatever <laughs> right. called. Right called hungry in the first or second century. Right, right exactly. If you're, making, if you're making half half faces as lamps, um, are you getting orders? I want the right side, I want the left side. Um, I mean, I don't know. Right. It's a whole left twix, right twix kind of a thing. <laughs> and you have you have to imagine that there's a there's a bigger story there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. About how these things got separated and either bigger or much smaller like these things are being churned out in some kind of manufacturing some kind of you know little factory and they're just getting orders in and you know packing them up and getting them to a point and shipping them off as if they were amazon right they're right. like little little eiffel tower figurines or snow like, globes exactly they're more, they're more exclusive than those because you don't have a lot of these all over the place not of this sort i think you find them in like you know, a variety of private collections, but you don't really have a large. Oh, like, and it's like the Franklin Mint. Right. You know, you get your, get your commemorative plate. Right. I'll, I'll take a grotesque male <laughs> <laughs> with an account sleeve hat. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing that just occurred to me now, anything made of bronze, if there were a lot of them, they could have been melted down. Right. The century, so maybe they were more ubiquitous than just what than people don't usually do with their commemorative plates from the Franklin Mint. <laughs> well, right, no. but this you know, if you have a shortage and you need to make weapons or something, well, you might, you know, life might take priority over over light. Ooh. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not that's not bad. That's not bad. Well, yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, but it also it also says something about how these kinds of ritualized items something you use every day but you're gonna you're gonna get one that's so special that you're gonna use it as a foundation deposit beneath your well house. hold it now just just hold your horses there <laughs> so these articles which all come from the times of israel right are not exactly the most uh 
the, most, complete? The, the most neutral of presentations. And I, and I did want to just touch on that, though I don't necessarily know we have to get into too much detail. But um, they start talking about it being a foundation deposit. But of course, what they've excavated is a large building on top of right. the Pilgrim Road. So it's not even part of the Pilgrim Road. It was a building built after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Right. And they keep talking about it being in the city of David. But we as archaeologists would probably say it was a artifact from Aelia Capitolina. Exactly. The Roman city. Right. And you're absolutely right. This was kind of cleverly buried towards the end of these articles. So we should make clear that this is not a Jewish item. This is a Roman item after, after Jewish Jerusalem and that temple had been destroyed. Right. And if the building itself, we don't really know anything about. But if the building is found on top of the road, then it, unless it's in the basement and really in a, a foundation, there, it doesn't, I don't necessarily know if we can call it at this juncture with the information we have a foundation deposit. So it's sort of, you know, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story because they made a really good story. They did. But, um, you know, it's a little bit incomplete as Alex already sort of mentioned. Right, right. No, those are, those are really good points. Um, and it makes more sense well, I mean, I could make, I suppose I could make a case for it making sense within Jewish worship, but I think it makes more sense within, within non-Jewish worship, if it's, if it's a ritual object, which... Yeah, yeah, as, yeah, given the context. And it certainly has nothing to do necessarily with the Pilgrim Road itself. Right, sure. That's put out of business. Right. So it's just a big Roman building at the bottom, at, you know, at the, at the Siloam Pool. Right, right. More than anything else. You no, know, it makes sense to have a big Roman building there because it is right. a big water source. So you you need some sort of administrative something or other there. Right. So absolutely. Yeah. You guys and and your relationship to the facts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that <laughs> almost that's touching. That's gotten right. in my way. That's gotten in my way for a very long time. <laughs> and look at where it's gotten you. <laughs> yeah. Really. Absolutely. Right. The whole point is the, is the story of these two halves of a lamp that- Right, that story, and that story's intact. And yeah. that's a good, and it's a good, it's a good story. Yeah, but it's a story, again, for me, it's a story of, of uh, you know, world systems more than anything else. And modern, modern world systems. Well, Roman world systems, the vastness oh, of both. the Roman empire, the integration of the economy and the, some kind of a popular culture that was, uh, that was being participated in across the empire, willingly and happily. Right, yeah. and, in, and, and in terms of modern scholarship, without the internet, this connection would probably never have been made, or it would have been made a million years later by some incredibly bored graduate students sitting in a library going, looking through these big books going, I've seen I've seen this before for some kind of imponderable assignment <laughs> that, that uh, he or she uh, w was given, and and it would have taken it would have taken a lot more effort than some Hungarian curator going, oh cool, I, I've seen this, I got one of those. I've seen that ugly mug, or at least half of it. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I just want to I just want to give a shout out to the speed and immediacy and instant gratification of the internet that we all 
enjoy it and, and which makes incredibly popular podcasts like this possible Incre especially in belgium yeah <laughs> i mean we tried the version with the postcards going back and forth that it didn't work at all subscribers you know right. no. well i also want to describe this thing a little bit more before sure. we continue on world systems too much um because it's it's shaped like a a uh face but a grotesque face like a roman or Greco-Roman theater mask. And um, its handle is shaped like an acanthus plant. So I looked up acanthus plants and um, they seem to be a symbol of enduring life. So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so again, you have life and light. Now I'm kind of over overdoing that, that phrase, but, but yeah. still. Um, and um, the other thing is that the other half of it is, is flat. So you've got half a face, and then the other side is a closed flat bronze surface. So one suggestion I think I read was um, that it might have been put up or hung on a wall so that you know it would be flush against the wall and then you'd have this. Like a sconce. Like a sconce, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Possibly the first time the word sconce has been used in certainly in this podcast. It's certainly in our podcast, but I, I've got to say, I'm sure other podcasts have been, I'm sure the, you know, the architectural erotica podcast has been waiting, <laughs> has used sconce you know, several times. Right. <laughs> the, the inimitable appeal of sconces. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. I didn't get, the, the articles also refer to the bottom of it being in the shape of a crescent moon. And yeah. honestly, I looked at that thing for a gosh, gosh darn long time and I saw no crescent moon. Yeah. So, see a crescent moon, I'll show you a crescent moon. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what that was about. Did you guys see a crescent moon? I can I can I can see a crescent moon. Get a good bead on what this thing looked like. Yeah. No, I, I can see looks from the from the bottom of the beard to the top of the head, I could see it as a crescent moon. Um, okay. I, I would I would not have I would not have said that myself. But would you have would you have wanted that hanging on your wall? Oh, definitely not. Even if it was oh. good luck. Um, one I, of your grandmothers have put it on the wall? I kind of think it's scary looking. How about if it was coupled with the uh, the comedy mask? That would be better. Yeah. That would help. Um, it was part of a set. Yeah, but I gotta say, it's kind of not to my taste in general, uh, even, yeah. even if it was coupled with a comedy one. A little bit on the Rococo side. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I prefer my sconces very, very plain. Yeah, well, but that that also is a good way to get into the, the whole question of lamps and and their incredible variation and decoration throughout throughout the whole history of their use, and from simple pinched over bowls to fancily decorated stamped things with symbolic items and mystical mystical symbols and and so on and the lamp is the lamp is an expression of ourselves much as Ooh. sconce is today Ooh. well and and certainly in the in the hellenistic and roman periods lamps really are are platforms for all sorts of iconography and are attached to all sorts of religious rites and observances and things like that uh, that still go on today. So, right. And that all has to do with the value of, and importance of light. And right. 
and its positive connotations. Uh, you know, I guess it's sort of, you know, you know, even in, even in the second millennium, right? Hammurabi on the stele of, of Hammurabi's law code, we have the God of light, Shamash. Uh, because of the importance of light and the, and the relationship of light to justice and, you know, all of those kinds of things. So that's good. That's good. Yeah. Light that's has cool. a lot of, light's gotten a lot of good PR. Right. <laughs> Darkness, not so Darkness, much. Not so much. Right. And, and I think we take it a little bit too much for granted today, but with electricity and all. And, <laughs> like, you know, last summer we had this big blackout, at least in the Northeast, we had this big blackout after a hurricane. And some of us were without light for five days and electricity and we couldn't charge our phones and so on and so forth. But uh, that's the but, first thing you think about is the phones, not, Oh, you know, the, the sun's going down. It's eight o'clock. We have to go to bed like, <laughs> like well, farmers but, or well, exactly, no. food is getting rotten. Well, yeah. So the food getting rotten is another big deal, which we don't take, which we take too much for granted today, but, but the light, you know, we, I don't want to go to bed at eight o'clock and the whole idea of having lamps means you don't have to, you're, you're, you're subverting the nature of the universe. By, Ooh, right? Yes. Yes. You are transcending the, uh, the natural environment. Does, does Shamash approve of that? Really? Why wouldn't he? Ooh. Yeah, I was going to say, I think they're all for it. <laughs> <laughs> I think right. the gods are all for, for for human innovation because after all, you know, we created the gods, so we're all for human innovation. They're sort of like That's sort of right. like uh, General Electric, you know, better living through through science advocates, right. yeah, just of the Bronze Age, right, right. Um, but uh, but but if I if I may continue. <laughs> Uh, when you don't have light, when you only have flickering candles or flickering oil lamps, you kind of think of your light in a different way because it's a different, a, a different tone, a different expression of light than daylight than sunlight, and uh, it's it's a limited sort of a light, um, and it's also a more um, I don't know. Well, it's a more flickery sort of a light, which can, like we were saying at the beginning, um, you know. I don't know, strobes and, and, and just your, it, it, it plays with your mind in different ways. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe just my mind. Well, it's, it's probably important to, to point out that, you know, humans have been, humans have been playing with fire for at least a hundred thousand years. Yeah. And it's Ray, Do Ray, Ray Don Chong. <laughs> at least <laughs> and, and we have her on the phone right now <laughs> um as our guest but yeah so but it, there's a question you know if if you're in one of these um lower paleolithic middle paleolithic caves and it's the flickering torches and the eternal light that stays on all the time to keep the cave bears away and all this that's a whole other kind of imperative. You got to keep that. You got to keep that kind of thing going, right? And you have to keep it keep it supplied, and it and it creates a whole other sense of security as opposed to sitting in your dopey little hovel in Babylon with your tiny flickering bowl of something, going. Right okay, we just have to make it through this night. <laughs> and then tomorrow we can go out and, you know, be in the mud again. 
Right, right. But there's also, so this, this type of lamp, which is just so fancy and so I'll say scary. Um, if you imagine <laughs> the, the darkness of a temple during a ritual and you've got this, this light flickering out of the mouth or a chin of this half image against your, your wall. I don't know, that, that adds an element to your ritual, whatever your ritual might you be. I love that stuff. <laughs> it's, it's probably just some sort of nightlight to keep. <laughs> <laughs> like Mickey Mouse. Away. Before we get too far afield, I'd like to bring us back to the artifacts itself oh. and, just, and, and just ask about, about the wick. How about the flax wick that they found evidence for? I, um, I certainly would not have bet on flax. I would have bet on, on the little pieces of wool or um, linen, which right. is not a flax, so I wouldn't have bet on linen. <laughs> but um, I, was, that, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what, are, what are, showing my ignorance here, but what are modern wicks made of? Cotton, I think. Cotton, I think. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Cotton didn't come in into what? the Middle East until around this time, later. Cotton, it was domesticated. I mean, uh, it, it was grown in earliest in India? India, yeah. India. But, but then it made its way, made its way west because right. it's so breathable. Right. <laughs> and, and it, you know, you can tie-dye. It's, it's not as breathable as wool because all good pack, backpackers know cotton kills. You never want to wear cotton when you're, when you're doing serious backpacking. You only want wool. I didn't know that, no. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so flax, which I always thought was, you know, something expensive and, you know, something sought after. And here they're just, they're just rolling it up and lighting it. <laughs> Is it I mean, we've had a conversation about olive oil and-, and It always comes back to textiles. Right. <laughs> it does, right. it does. does. Does flax burn cleaner than, than other- <laughs> According flax. To Use flax, the clean burning. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, according to the flax lobby, it does. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I don't know, that's an experimental question that we should, uh, we should be working on. Right. Well, here's another question related related to finding this wick because I think I read I know I read that they were going to do some testing on it to see what sort of residue um, they can they can find, um, but that means that this was a partly burned, uh, not not a pristine unused uh, lamp with a pristine unused wick, but a used lamp that's being buried in a potential foundation deposit. Does that mean anything? You know, if, if it was a foundation deposit, you wouldn't have expected a wick, would you? That I was wondering about that. No, yeah, you would expect like the pristine form of the artifact, right? Unused and held up as a, you know, as an iconic uh, rendering, an, an iconic example of a greater category, as opposed to, hey, does anyone have a light? You know, does <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it could be, and, and here I'll, I'll display my shocking ignorance of, you know, Roman lamp-related foundation deposit rituals. Maybe it was like you, you took a, a lit lamp and you dug the hole and tossed it in mm -hmm. that hole while it's, while it's burning. At the, end of a, at the end of a ritual, that could Something be. Like and especially because, you know, you have all these mystery religions and mystery cults, and we don't really know what they were doing. No, 
hence the name. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Truth in advertising for once. But uh, yeah, well, there are a lot of religions at this point that are that have well, all religions at this point have sacred fires and mystical flames and uh, things that have they keep burning all the time and you know right yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's and that's an important that's an important thing to talk about because you have that in Judaism. You've had that, you know, you had the everlasting light in the temple period. So, you know, that's I know this is Roman. We've already established this is Roman. I'm just throwing that out there. But you've also got Mithra, Mithra cults. Yeah, which Zoroastrians have uh, all sorts of like fire them. altars. Fire altars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So, so I mean, these are like gigantic social cultural lamps to light light the cult the culture's way into the future yeah can cool. them between this world and that world a light <laughs> and by this world and that world you mean this world or that world or this <laughs> world really you know however far you can see it <laughs> there's lots of worlds out there <laughs> i want to go back to the to the practical archaeological questions of of what light means in terms of time and work and schedules and materials that's necessary to, to make artificial light and what this does to the human psychology. Okay, you realize those are not practical archeological questions though. <laughs> we, can make them, we can make them practical. Okay. <clears throat> so it regularizes, it routinizes, it creates standardization of the day and it, I mean, in Jewish, uh, anti in antiquity for, for, for Judaism, of course, it, it brings the whole issue of Shabbat and work on Shabbat. And, you know, you have these crazy Karaites who aren't lighting flames and don't have heat and their Shabbats are horrible, dreary events spent cold and huddled in the dark, uh, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, the, the, <laughs> the lightful Jews who are lighting candles and lighting lamps and having warmth. I mean, you know, so you have, you have it impacting society at both, uh, you know, in terms of daily life and in terms of ritual life. Uh, and it sort of does create the uh, diurnal calendar. In, right? yeah. That's, yeah. That's uh, the first use of the word diurnal. <laughs> well, you really, you raise the bar by using sconce. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> you had sconce in your back pocket. You're waiting to to just you know flip that card, and now and now we're really going to be all looking to to see what kind of word we can use. It's never been used on our podcast. So. I don't know. You guys are you guys are pretty incandescent. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. see, I thought your I thought your uh, lightning round question was going to be uh, about rock and roll songs that have lamp or light in it. Oh. oh well, that's almost too easy. Too easy. Yeah, there are so many, so many love lights out there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but uh, for example, and so many lamps that you can turn down low. Yeah, uh, and uh, <clears throat> be that as it may. But <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what did, what did they do? I mean, this is one of the big to me one of the big issues in, in understanding the transition from kind of the Neolithic mentality of, oh yeah, just honey, just light that giant torch uh -huh. kind of thing. 
in the in the post Neolithic mentality, when they start having little bowls full of flammable material that you can you can spark up more easily and transport more easily and um right. you have more control over over time and you're less likely to set the set the house on fire as well well less likely or more likely if you have little bowls filled with flammable material well, that's true i mean you know for anybody who any any uh any fifth millennium person who reaches the age of 40, they're probably, you know, knocking things over and, you know, setting up. I mean, you know, one accident at a Sheikli Huyuk and the whole place goes up, right? It's all right. interconnected. Right. Right. So, but that goes on until, you know, th throughout history. With, throughout history, right. Yeah, right. This is O'Leary's cow and all that. And, exactly. Yeah. Right. The, the difference is that in, in Chicago, in the 19th century, presumably the whole city was not built of simply of wood and flammable dung. Mm. Well, apparently it was. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it was built out of, we don't have any of it. There must have been other materials that were that were in there. Right. But I, I think there's something to this whole kind of time and psychology. No, I think you're right. I think I, but I think I suspect it's a very gradual. It's it's so incremental and gradual as opposed to a kind of, you know, Neolithic, end of Neolithic, calcolithic punctuated equilibrium. I suspect the technology was accreting very slowly and that we're probably missing some things or missing a bunch of bowls or, you know, with little soot marks or whatever. Right. So um, if it's so gradual and so many other things are happening in the Neolithic that are transcendent, would, it was probably just a whole package of things. That's interesting. And what were, and what were they burning? Uh, in, what were the first lamps burning? Animal fat? Probably. Yeah. Um, I, but also don't, so, so like throughout the Bronze Age, oil lamps were really, really simple things. They were basically pinch pots with the little pinch in for the wick, as opposed to the Roman period, right? right. They're suddenly really, they're, they're art objects. And they're closed. And they're closed. Closed. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. That's a, probably the biggest change. Well, it becomes a it becomes a form of expression. Yeah. What are they expressing with their lamps? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's light in here. We can finally see what's going on. Well, they, right. There's all these erotic lamps, right? Lamps with erotic yeah. scenes on them. There's right. lamps with all sorts of religious iconography which to some people is also erotic i mean you know so it, it's really definitional as to how we understand these things um there's all sorts of you know kinds of of, of a variety of scenes and a variety of you know very typical kinds of motifs um you know. but you, so in, in the roman period you could walk into somebody's house and you could figure out who they were and what their, something about their background, their values, their ideology by looking at their, at their lamps, as opposed to a Bronze Age house. You walk into their house in the Bronze Age and you simply say, oh, it's the, I guess looking at your stuff, I guess it's EB4 here and not E3 <laughs> as it is in my house. <laughs> well, okay, so that, that brings up a good question. And uh, uh, a very wise uh, colleague of mine has said for 
at this point, many decades, um, you know, if you walked into my house and, and looked at my music collection, you would think I was British, but I'm not. Um, so did I say that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> with, with the who. Yeah. So you know, we have lamps with crosses. We have lamps with menorahs. Uh, found in you know big sites like Sepphoris, which had a mixed population. Uh, undoubtedly, there are lamps with pagan iconography. Were people buying lamps just because they liked the look? Of it, maybe people like menorahs, maybe people like crosses. Uh, were they giving, giving gifts to people not of that religion? So, what kind of assumption can we make just because you find a lamp with a cross on it that that particular residence is Christian? I mean, yes, it makes sense at a very, you know, sort of prosaic level, but aren't isn't that a big assumption? It is a big assumption, and it's an assumption we always tend to make based on lamps or any other object, crosses on walls or whatever, and that's. Uh, uh, that that's a problem because we're never going to be able to see right the motivations be, how how something got there. It could be a gift. It could be it could be um, trying to impose your religion on your neighbors. It could be anything. And it could be a know. re-gift for right. all we know. They they could they could have been cheap. There could have been a sale on you know on on lamps with menorahs because the whole Jewish population of Sephirus decided to move. And then so some, you know, some, some, you know, pottery manufacturing had all these things and they had to remainder them. Right, right, but, exactly. The things that were the least popular because they weren't selling suddenly became the most popular because they were cheap. Right, we never factor in, and because we can't, we never factor in market forces into these kinds right. of equations, unless we have texts that tell us, <laughs> right. boy, did I take a bath on, on, on the, uh, on the uh, on the lamps with uh, with crosses on them, right, right. Or boy, did I overpay on this half lamp? It's only half a lamp. It's only half a face. <laughs> right. Who comes home with half a lamp? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> I sent the other half to my cousin in Hungary. Yeah, exactly. Where's the other half, Mister <laughs> Mister Big Shot in Hungary? <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing. We're kind of been assuming a Roman, a Roman workshop, which is sending out this fancy lamp to different parts of the world, but it could have been something that was sort of down the line traded that made it all the way to Hungary. Um, I mean, that's also an assumption. But... Right, well, we'd it would be good to know where they were manufactured because it could have been split the difference. They could have been made in, you know, Belgrade. And, right. and so, you know, who knows? Right, right. <clears throat> Well, so I'm sure, I'm sure that the, the, the science boffins will, will tell us that in due course when they analyze the residue and the, and the metal and, and all this. Yeah, yeah. But, so what yeah. else do we want to say about, about this, this particular object or the, how else can we illuminate the subject of? <laughs> Well, I, I think we can all be proud of ourselves for not making a reference to the Lord of Light in the Game of Thrones. So, oh. is that a show? <laughs> yes, yeah. I believe um, it was. Right. Well, I think one thing we can say is this particular lamp or these particular lamps um, are definitely for ritual use. I mean, yes, it's an assumption, but you're not going to just have this. You can have a plain old oil lamp made of made of clay in your house, and uh, this is not that, 
right? This is a fancy metal object. They, they were rich. Isn't that the simplest explanation? Okay. Okay. Honey, I've got to, maybe they were getting divorced and she decided to get the, the fanciest <laughs> lamp. And only <laughs> half. <laughs> only half. And to send the other half to her Hungarian, her Hungarian cousin, Zsa And I, I think it's, I think it's great that we can invent all these, all these facocta stories about. Absolutely. About, but actually bring up an interesting point though, because the fact that, you know, one has the sticky out notch and one has the depressed notch means that if, if in fact these were once the same object, or even if they were from very similar objects, they were made with the understanding that they are two halves of a whole. And now I'm thinking of these little heart necklaces that, you know, you give one half to your boyfriend and you keep the other for yourself. Um, so maybe, you know, even if these two aren't the match that we're meant to be together, maybe there is a second half. That's a good story. Right. Isn't Keep this lamp. Yeah. I will find yeah. you. Right. I mean, that, that's something we can assume not based on fine space, but just based on, on manufacturing of, of this notch. Right. That they were a set. That they were right. conceived of as a set. Right. Right. So that's all I got. But also artifacts are always being reunited with, with other artifacts. I, I read something the other day about some Roman statue that got its fingers back. <laughs> that they had been separated in the 19th century. One went to the, yeah, the one fingers went to, went to and one went to, you know, the British Museum. Something like, something like that. Yeah, and I was just reading about the um, Parthenon marbles that some are in the Acropolis Museum and the same, the other half of each sculpture is in the British Museum. Right. Um, again, this is because of modern modern movements, not not ancient. Um, but it's fascinating too, but it's a different thing. It's a different sort of fascination. <laughs> right. Was... Oh, right. What are you doing down there? <laughs> Me? I'm trying to get away from the window where the gardener is actually mowing outside. Okay. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of movement. I seem to be slumping lower. <laughs> well, I think we've brought a, light, a lot of light to the subject. Ooh, we have. We have. Yes. And I think we've lit it up as much as we can. <laughs> well, I've, only begun to, I've only begun to lit it up. <laughs> what? But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, final final comments from anybody? Um, sure. I think it's a really interesting looking lamp that I really don't want hanging on my wall. <laughs> I'll second. I'll second that. I like how how a this just a weird artifact and its even weirder story can be a way to illustrate archaeological thinking and reconstruction and much more fundamental issues about human behavior and space and time and <laughs> all that kind of jazz. Very nice. It, 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 they, and that's what archaeology is about, really. That's what we try to do. I never managed to actually succeed in class. But on this podcast, I think we're, I think we're making some progress. <laughs> that's true. We're telling, a, we're telling a good story. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, I think I can safely say that we all got something out of this episode. 
As always, we thank Erez Dessel and his electrically lit orchestra for our theme music. We also want to thank our sponsor, The Sun. If you're looking for an energy source for photosynthesis, to grow crops, or to just sit back and read a book, why not use light from our sun? It's still free and available at least a few hours a day. Terms and conditions may apply. To get in touch, leave us a comment or send us an email at This Week in the Ancient Near East, all one word, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.